Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's very nice to be able to come back here to Lake Street because it's an opportunity for me to be around friends. It's an opportunity for, for me to be around people who have known me for quite some time. And it's just another opportunity to be around brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it is wonderful to have the invitation to be back here to speak among you. And I'm looking forward to our study this afternoon. Well, all of us recognize where different sources of authority in our lives come from. And we also recognize the areas where authority does not come from. I'll give you an example. Charlotte right now is learning these things as we speak because Charlotte is what we would consider a backseat driver. I approach a stoplight and Charlotte says, hey, Dad, we need to go left. And I say, no, Charlotte, we actually need to go right. She says, no, we need to go left. No, Charlotte, trust me, we need to go right. And so I turn right. And of course, her reaction is, you know, Daddy, we're going the wrong way. But see, Charlotte has to learn that in that situation, it does not matter what she thinks is best. I, in that situation, am the authority. I know which way we need to go, and so I make that decision. I have the power to do that. Teenagers have to learn this too. I remember when I was younger and I worked at a couple of fast food restaurants. Every time I saw that I was on the schedule to clean the bathrooms at the close of the shift, I just had this wave of emotion go through me because I didn't want to do it. That is the absolute last thing that I ever wanted to do. But guess what? It didn't matter what I felt. My emotions did not override the authority of my manager. And so at the end of every shift, I'd get the mop bucket, I'd get the cleaning supplies, and I'd go do what it was that I didn't want to do. And these things don't change in adulthood, do they? I, like maybe some of you, really like going to see Kentucky play at Rupp Arena. And if there is a, a foul called against Kentucky that I don't agree with, me and 23,000 other people, we're going to let the referees know that we don't agree with that call. But guess what? It doesn't matter what we say or how we feel or what we think. Because the only one who has the power to make that call is wearing the stripes and holding the whistle. And this is just the way life is. We understand that there are areas in our lives where our feelings and our opinions don't matter because we are subject to someone who has the power to give orders and to enforce obedience. And if we are able to recognize this in our daily lives, how much more should we recognize it in our relationship to God? And so this afternoon, what I want us to do is I want us to read three stories. Two stories that actually show us where authority does not come from, and one story that shows us where authority does come from. And the first story that I want to look at is found in the book of 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, take them out and let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we're going to be reading about the Ark of the Covenant being transported back to the city of Jerusalem. 
Now, if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was this elaborate chest or this box, and it contained uh, the Ten Commandments and a couple of other very notable items to the Israelite people. And it also served as a symbol of God's presence among the people. On the top of it, there was what was called the mercy seat, and there are these cherubim, and the God was said to have presided and resided between those cherubim. So this was a very, very important piece for the Israelite people. But sadly, the ark had been neglected for quite some time, and so King David decided that he was going to right that wrong, and he was going to have the ark transported into Jerusalem, the capital city, where it needed to be. And that's exactly what we see happening in 2 Samuel 6. But in order to understand even better what it is we're about ready to read, there's a couple other things that we need to know. And one of those things is that God had given very, very specific directions in how the Ark of the Covenant was to be handled. When the Ark was transported, it was to be carried. But not just anyone could carry the Ark. Certain Levites were to carry the Ark. And although they were supposed to carry it, they were never, ever supposed to touch it. And so to accommodate that, there were these four rings that were put on the outside of the ark, and those rings were supposed to have these poles go through them, and those poles were to enable the people who were carrying the ark to do so without ever touching the ark. And these specific things that God commanded eliminated any other method of transporting the ark. It couldn't go on a cart. It couldn't be pulled by oxen. It couldn't be carried by random people. God gave clear direction on how it was supposed to be done, and that's exactly how it was supposed to be done. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 and begin in verse 1. There it says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio was before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, as we were reading through those first few verses of 2 Samuel, did you notice how the ark was transported? Right? Instead of being carried by specific Levites using those poles like we said it needed to be, it was on a cart. And that cart was being pulled by oxen. And as those oxen approached the threshing floor, which is just a place where the grain would be separated from the, the straw uh, and the, what do they call the other stuff on that? Just the grain is separated from the straw. That is where the oxen stumbled. 
And I imagine that there was very, very poor traction there. And so the oxen approach that threshing floor and they stumble. And when the oxen stumble, the cart shakes. And the ark, of course, seems that it's about to fall. And so Uzzah, one of the men who was driving the cart, he did what I think most of us would do. And he reached out his hand to steady that ark. And from what I can tell from the text, the ark did not fall. But Uzzah did. Because God struck him down for touching the ark. And you think about that. And you think, wow, that's kind of tough. Why would God do that? But when we consider other stories in Scripture, we realize that this is not uncommon for God to react to something like this in this way. If you remember in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 10, there's the story of Nadab and Abihu. And these were the sons of Aaron, and they offered unauthorized or strange fire. And because they offered something that was unauthorized, God struck them with fire. And they died. Or you go to Acts chapter 5 and there's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And they sold a portion of land, but they deceitfully held back a portion of it. And because of that deceit, God struck them down. And then you go to 1 Kings chapter 13 and you read about this man of God and he ends up eating somewhere that he wasn't supposed to be eating, being somewhere he wasn't supposed to be, and the next thing we know, he's lying dead in the middle of a road. And to better make sense of these things, we need to understand something about God. We need to understand that God is a holy God. And when we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about something that is very difficult to put into words. This was a holiness that when men were in the presence of God's glory, they would fall on their face, hide their face. They were speechless. This is a holiness, a purity, that can have no association with evil, no association with sin. And that's why when we see Uzzah do something Like, touch the ark. That's why that act is worthy of death. Because it is a transgression against the holy command of God. No matter how small it may seem in our mind, it is a transgression against it. And you think, well, yeah, God's holy. I get that. But couldn't He have overlooked Uzzah's mistake given the situation? I mean, you think about what we read. There were thousands of people celebrating the return of the ark. And they were so excited. So excited to bring home the ark. There was anticipation. There was music. There was laughter. I know a couple of weeks ago when I was studying for this, I closed my eyes for just a few minutes to try and put myself in this situation, to try and imagine what it would be like to be in that environment. 
And I imagined for a brief moment that I caught a glimpse of King David. And when I saw King David in my own eyes, there were tears coming down his cheeks because they were tears of joy. Because he was so happy. I imagined that I saw Uzzah and Ohio passing by as they were driving the cart. And they too were grinning from ear to ear because they were honored to be driving the cart that carried the ark of God. This was a historic moment for Israel. This was an emotional moment for Israel. But those emotions on that day did not override the fact that the ark was transported in a way that God said not to transport it and that the ark was touched. 2 Samuel chapter 6 teaches us that authority is not based on, God, on, on our emotions. We can be excited and we can be passionate and we can be well-intentioned, but if whatever we're doing violates God's law, then it violates God's law. Our feelings are not the standard of right and wrong. And so we need to be careful when we start saying things like, well, you know, this feels like the right thing to do. Or God is going to love this because it just feels so right to me. Or, you know, there's so much positive energy. There's so much joy surrounding whatever it is we're thinking about doing that it has to be the right thing to do. You know what makes me feel good? A loud concert with a light show. I love it. It's an environment that I really enjoy being in. So what if, as a local congregation, we decided to put our heads together and do something similar like that in worship to God, all in the name of glorifying God? Well, there would maybe be, maybe be a portion of the congregation who would be excited about that. They would be passionate about that, emotionally charged about it. But that doesn't mean that it would be right. Because our emotions are not the authority. They are not the standard of right and wrong. And so we can be tricked into thinking that positive emotions can be the authority. That they can be the standard. But we can also be tricked into thinking that sorrowful emotions can be our standard of authority. And that's a real danger, especially when we're dealing with emotionally charged topics like marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I say that because my wife, Carolyn, has a family member who befriended several months ago her neighbor. In fact, she even sat down with that neighbor and taught her neighbor the gospel, and she responded to the gospel. But as it turned out, that neighbor was in an unscriptural marriage. She did not belong or have the right to be with the husband that she was with. And so Carolyn's family member became extremely emotional about this. Because she had to tell her friend the truth about what Scripture said about the marriage that she was in. And to have to have that talk with anybody is extremely difficult. But to have to have that talk with somebody who has become a very good friend is even more challenging. And so she was distraught. 
She lost her appetite. She couldn't eat. She lost 10 pounds leading up to the conversation that she had to have with her friend. And she could have let these sorrowful emotions that she was feeling become her authority. She could have said, you know, this isn't something that I want to do. I'm uncomfortable doing this. This could ruin our friendship. God will understand if I just keep silent. But you know what? She didn't keep silent. Instead, she prayed about it. And she talked to older, wiser people who had been through similar situations. She studied for herself. And she decided that she was going to put aside her emotions. And she was going to trust in the authority of God. And she confronted her friend and had that conversation with her friend. And so our emotions, whether positive or negative, are not the basis for our authority. But 2 Samuel chapter 6 teaches us something else that's closely related to this first point, and that is that our authority is not based on what we think is right. You think again about how that ark was transported. It was transported on a cart. Now in my mind, that's the right way to do it. Because it seems to me to be more efficient. It lets the animals do all the work. It saves the shoulders of the men who would have to carry that heavy ark. It's probably overall faster, maybe even a little bit safer. But guess what? That's not what God wanted. Or you think about the fact that Uzzah touched the ark to keep it from falling again. There's something else that, to me, seemed like the right decision. But just because I think it's the right decision, or just because Uzzah thought it was the right decision, doesn't make it the right decision. Scripture is clear in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And so there are things that we think are right, or things that we think are good to do. But unless God has given us the authority to do those things, we may be encroaching on God's standard. I'll give you an example. We may put our heads together, or you here at Lake Street could put your heads together and say, you know, we've got some wise, intelligent, talented women here. And we could really utilize them in the public worship service. They could preside at the Lord's Supper. Or they could get up and they could share their thoughts in the form of a sermon. Or they could even lead singing. To us, that may sound like an effective and efficient thing to do. But unless God tells us that we can do things like that, we don't do things like that. We need to make sure that we're being responsible. We need to make sure that we're respecting the authority of Scripture and searching out God's Scripture to see what God desires, to see what He wants us to do, to observe His commandments and the principles that He has provided. And you know what? That's ultimately what David did. Because after this initial event of bringing the ark into Jerusalem and Uzzah touching the ark, it turns out that the ark actually remained outside of Jerusalem for at least a few more months. And when they decided to bring the ark, attempt to bring the ark back again, 
David decided that this time they were going to do it differently. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 13, David said this. He said, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. David recognized what went wrong. They didn't seek God's authority. They didn't see what God had to say about bringing in the ark. But when they did it again, they did it the right way. And so whatever we do, we need to make sure that we are seeking God and doing the things that are pleasing to Him and bring Him glory. Let's look at another story. This time, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, and we're going to read the first eight verses. In Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, that being Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. All right, so here in Mark chapter 7, we have some Pharisees and some scribes, and they're hanging around Jesus, and they noticed that a few of Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. And they didn't like that. And I don't like that. Because I prefer that everybody wash their hands before they eat, right? But the reason the Pharisees were upset wasn't really for hygiene reasons. The, reasons the, Phari- the reason the Pharisees were upset in this particular context is because the disciples not washing their hands went against Jewish tradition. In Judaism, there was the written law, which was the Old Testament, including the Torah or the law of Moses, and then there is the oral law. And the oral law was man's traditions, man's interpretations of the law, not authority. The problem was many people would uphold the oral law to the same standard or to an even higher standard than the written law. And that seems to be what the Pharisees are doing here. They're taking this tradition of hand-washing and they're treating it as law, almost as if it came from the mouth of God Himself. And that's why in verse 7, Jesus quotes from Isaiah and says that they are teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Well, Mark chapter 7 teaches us something about authority, and that is that authority is not based on tradition. You think about what God has commanded us to do. 
He's commanded us to gather on the first day of the week. And within that command, God has given us the latitude to make certain decisions. We get to decide when we meet on Sunday. Here at Lake Street, you all have decided to meet in the morning and then once again at 2.30 in the afternoon. God has given us the latitude to determine when we take up the collection on the first day of the week. He's given us the latitude to decide how many songs we sing on the first day of the week. And those decisions that we're allowed to make sometimes become tradition. At East End, we get together at 9.30 and for Bible class and 10.30 for worship. We typically have one song before the Scripture reading and the opening prayer. And every third Wednesday night, we have a singing. And I know that whenever I get done preaching, I typically walk down front and I stand in the front and we sing an invitation song. Me standing in the front is a tradition. And all of those traditions are fine so long as we treat them as tradition and not as law. And we might know that we have a problem with viewing traditions more strongly than we should is if things start to change or if a change is made and we start saying things like, well, hold on a second. This can't be right because we've never done it this way. Or we've always done it the other way. But remember what Mark chapter 7 teaches us. Tradition is not the standard of authority. What God says, His commands, His principles, that is the standard. But Mark 7 teaches us something else, and that is that authority is not based on men. You think about the Pharisees. These were influential men, well-educated men. People looked up to these men for spiritual guidance. And so I can only imagine how many people heard the Pharisees say, hey, you got to wash your hands. And they said, oh, I better go wash my hands. And the only reason they did that is because they looked to the Pharisees and viewed the Pharisees as the authority. And I can't imagine how many people not only did that, but so many other traditions, simply because they came from the mouth of the Pharisees. Well, in our lives, there are preachers and teachers and elders and parents and grandparents and friends and other relatives who are well-educated. And they may be very influential. And they may be well-intentioned. But at the end of the day, those things do not make them the authority. I think about the denominational world. And how many people struggle to come out of the denominational world or may never come out of the denominational world because of the influence of preachers or teachers or family members? And they say, well, you know, mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, they've worshipped at that church for years. They can't be wrong. Well, Mark 7 shows us That authority is not based ultimately on what other people say. Authority is based on God. And we see this even further when we look at our last story. In Mark chapter 9, just a couple of chapters over in verses 2 through 8. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8 shows us 
exactly where authority comes from. And if you begin with me in Mark chapter 9 and verse 2, it says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. In this account, we have Jesus going with Peter and James and John up on the mountain. And it is there that Jesus was transfigured. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but it had to be amazing. Scripture there says that His garments were radiant white like no one could bleach them on earth. I imagine that He was glowing. And as Jesus is being transfigured, there appeared with Jesus Moses and Elijah. Those great men of old. Moses, the man whom God communicated and gave the law through. Elijah, that great prophet who did so many mighty works for God. And then there's Peter and James and John, these Jews. And they're standing there in the presence of Moses and Elijah. And in their minds, I can only imagine that they're just dumbfounded. Because Their religion, Judaism, upheld Moses and Elijah as these great pillars. And Peter says, Lord, let me build you a tent for for you and Moses and Elijah. I imagine in Peter's mind, he's probably thinking, are you as great as these two men of old? Jesus, let me make you a tent. Let me treat you the same way that I am going to treat them. Maybe in Peter's mind, he was elevating Jesus to their status. But all of a sudden, a voice came out from heaven. The voice of God. And the voice of God said this, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And it was then that Moses and Elijah left the scene. And the only one there with Peter and James and John was Jesus Christ. The one in whom God said, This is my beloved son, listen to him. Moses is not the ultimate authority. Elijah is not the ultimate authority. God clearly and emphatically communicated that His Son, Jesus Christ, is the authority. 
And it's a heavenly authority. Because it's authority that came from God the Father. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It is God who highly exalted Jesus. It is God who set the name of Jesus above all other names, above the name of Moses, above the name of Elijah, above the name of anybody in our own life, above our own names. Jesus' name is above all, meaning all authority comes from Him. And it is at His name that every knee will bow. And it is His name that every tongue will one day confess. And Jesus says of Himself in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority in both heaven and earth has been given to the Son, has been given to Jesus Christ, which means He's the authority over the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read that Jesus Christ is the head Meaning that everything that we do as a church, the things that we participate in, the things that we don't participate in, are all because we respect the authority of the head of the church. The one who has all authority. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has authority over our individual lives. Above all else, we submit to Him. In our lives, as we go into the work week and into school and the various places that we go, everything that we do is to be in submission to Him and in according to His standards. We are to follow His lead. We are to listen to His words and to the inspired words of His apostles. Because it is the words of Jesus that hold all weight and have all authority. And Jesus says some very important things about entering into a relationship with Him. About becoming right in the eyes of God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, or excuse me, in John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. The authoritative man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, said that it's necessary to believe in Him. We know that His inspired apostles elsewhere in the New Testament communicated that same idea. 
In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it said, in Matthew, it said, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus proclaimed this idea of repentance. In other words, turning from paths of darkness, turning from sin, and walking in paths of light. Turning from sin. Desiring to no longer walk in it. We know in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that Peter, on the day of Pentecost, after he preached the gospel message, said, Repent and be baptized. Jesus Himself also said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, So everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I will also acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies Me before men, I also will deny before My Father who is in heaven. Jesus preached confession. The need to acknowledge Him as who He said He was. The Son of God. And not only are we to confess, but we are to live out that confession in our lives. The Apostle Paul, that Apostle of Jesus Christ, said in the book of Romans, For with the heart one believes and is justified, but with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The inspired Apostles again confirm the teachings of Jesus. And lastly, Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Again, Peter, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul to the Galatians, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Jesus, and His inspired apostles teach us what it means to enter into a relationship with God. The obedient things that must be done. And it all culminates in the baptism of being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins and rising to live as a new creation. Well, if you're ready to submit to His authority this very afternoon, you can do that. If you recognize that there is sin in your life and that sin is keeping you from a proper relationship with God, you can do the things that Jesus taught. You can do the things that His apostles taught. If you are somebody who has become a Christian and you realize that you're not living in step with the words and the commands of the authoritative Savior, we can pray for you and you can seek forgiveness from God. Pray for that forgiveness. And we can encourage you and pray for you and help you along your way. If there is anything that we can do for you this afternoon of a spiritual nature, we encourage you to come forward as together we stand and as we sing.